welcome to Weird Studies, an art and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martel. For more episodes and to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Last time we were talking, we were talking about games, and the particular game we were talking about is Dungeons and Dragons, or more generally, I guess you call them tabletop games, uh, role-playing role games, playing, table, tabletop role-playing games. I guess yeah. we were talking about. And today we're talking about a rather different kind of game, which is the games of violence, blood sports. Uh, those would include boxing, mixed martial arts, and any of its component arts, taekwondo, jiu-jitsu, judo, etc. Basically combat sports, and particularly those that lie closer to actual combat. In other words, where participation in organized competition of these games results in injury, not as a happenstance, as an uh, unwanted byproduct, but as kind of the point of the game. That's kind of what I mean by blood sports. And I'm not talking about things like cockfighting or dogfighting, like animal blood sports, which maybe this is some kind of philosophical or logical inconsistency on my part, but to me, those are an entirely different order of things. They're, uh, I mean, I find them utterly repulsive because my feeling is that animals don't consent to be in these fights, whereas human beings do. And maybe that's a thin rationalization for why I absolutely detest this kind of a spectacle of brutality to animals, whereas I don't detest that same spectacle when it's applied to human beings. Uh, maybe on some level that doesn't make sense, but I'm just going to draw a line in the sand right now and say that all of that uh, Hemingway shit about uh, the nobility and tragedy of the bullfight get the fuck out of my face with that shit i just i got no you don't I got like no I, I just got no patience for that and like i said i'm probably inconsistent on that point but you know fuck hemingway some people would probably feel the same about your passion for human blood sports yep <laughs> and that's kind of why we're yeah. doing an episode on it because because it's weird because there's something genuinely strange about that appetite for uh, human, <laughs> the appetite for human blood, which uh, I have a, a apparently a limitless thirst for human blood. As as we were discussing the topic, like for me, I, I my mind automatically goes to war when I think about these sports. I think there's a clear continuity between this pitting of champions against one another, you know, and, and it has a it has a military past. The pugilism was practiced in almost every army that ever existed as yeah. a way of settling disputes. The whole tournament tradition in medieval Europe, which was at the heart of the, the kind of knightly ethos, that was the heart of chivalry. That was, uh, you know, the, these duels and these were kind of central to it. And then the uh, just the idea of an organized, an organized bout, an organized combat with rules, but setting the rules in such a way as that, that the combat remains real, you know, that's kind of like, 
that's kind of like what war is in a sense, you know? And when you read like the, the earliest accounts of war, stuff like uh, the Iliad, the ritualistic, the, the, the ritual aspect of warfare is very, very front and center in those texts. Like there are ways of doing things. There are ways of attacking a city. There are ways of, of uh, organizing uh, your troops on a battlefield and letting them face each other. There are unfair moves, you know, <laughs> there, yeah. there are things you don't do in a war. And so so that's been interesting to me. So, so I, I went and revisited uh, James Hillman's book, a terrible love of war. And I read uh, a chapter called War is Sublime, in which he explores the beauty of war, the kind of unholy alliance between beauty and war, or between, in Greek terms, between Ares and Aphrodite. And maybe we can get into that. But but uh, just before I, I do that, I should just say a few words, I guess, about James Hillman. James Hillman was a psychologist, a union psychologist. Um, I guess you'd call him a post-structural union psychologist. He rejected some of Jung's basic axioms or assumptions and went for a more, I guess you'd call it a polytheistic or um, pluralistic approach to archetypal psychology. And uh, he wrote some very, very evocative texts. And one of his one of his big preoccupations was masculinity, you know. He was really interested in archetypes of the the, the puer and the, um, the senex, the old man and the child, and how these um, played out in the male psyche uh, specifically. So his book, A Terrible Love of War, is kind of part of this effort to understand man, and this I'm using man to mean men, you know. And uh, it's a really, really interesting book, and it's a very brave book because he's saying a lot of um, a lot of things that could could get someone in trouble today in that book. Yeah, uh-huh. like what? Well, just to point out that there is beauty in violence to begin with. So when he when he kind of retells the myth, the story of Ares and Aphrodite's love affair, uh, it's really, really interesting, actually. Like, so. Aphrodite's lawful husband was Hephaestus, the the god of the smithy, the uh, artisan god. And it's quite natural and logical that beauty and um, art would be married at some level, you know, that they they would belong together. But then one day Ares sees Aphrodite, falls in love with her, and they have a secret affair. And so in the, the way Homer talks about it in the Odyssey, the union of beauty and war is is a scandal. It's a it's a cosmic scandal that shouldn't have happened. So the sun or Helios, the god of the sun, who sees all, he sees Aphrodite and Ares kind of have you know having sex in Hephaestus's bed, and then he informs Hephaestus, and then Hephaestus builds a net out of iron to trap them in the act, and then uh, the trap is set off the next time they meet, and then so Ares and Aphrodite are stuck. You know, in the act, they can't move at all. They're just stuck in bed in the, the uh, I guess I'm assuming it was the missionary position. <laughs> and then, um, and, and then, so then Hephaestus is, is just furious and screaming and all the other gods come over. Uh, but the goddesses don't come. The goddesses were too modest to come and see something like that. So they stay out of it. But all the male gods come together and they're laughing at this absurd situation of, you know, Aphrodite and Ares stuck together on the bed. Hephaestus is all pissed off. And then they start to deliberate as to what to do. And Hillman kind of highlights two 
possible approaches to this discovery of the union of love and beauty on the one hand and, and war and violence on the other. Uh, the first, Hermes is the first to, he, he says, basically he says, well, I'll gladly take Ares's place on the bed if I get to sleep with Aphrodite. So that's his, um, his way of trying to like resolve the situation. And then the second, the second god to speak up is Poseidon. He's the only one who doesn't laugh. He doesn't find it funny at all. And he says, no, we have to do something about this. We have to separate them right now. And he offers to pay uh, Hephaestus Ares' debt, the, the kind of blood tithe that he has to pay to resolve the situation. He offers to pay it so that as quickly as possible, the two of them can be separated and moved apart from each other. So... Hermes, who's kind of the amoral explorer, who's willing to entertain a kind of almost like a kind of decadent god, he's able to enter into the union of violence and beauty and to explore it, whereas Poseidon is much more alarmed by it and sees the possible consequences of this, and he just wants to form some kind of legal framework for separating the two, for keeping the two apart. Um, So, why Poseidon? It's kind of. I mean, why, like, why Poseidon? So far, this myth is really easily comprehensible in light of what we're going to talk about today, which is like the unholy or um, uncertainly unsanctioned beauty of violence. You know, I kind of love the idea that this is a scandal, uh, that beauty and love should maintain a dalliance with war with fighting i that's absolutely true i think one of the fundamental things that i will say about blood sports about particularly boxing which is uh, my blood sport of choice i guess i would say i the main thing i would say is that there is something uh i don't know about unholy but certainly unsanctioned unlawful uh there's something wrong with that union and yet it exists like that happened. You can't unring a bell. You know, there's, I love I love how this myth allows you to really feel out the capacities of and and potentialities of this problem because it's just sort of like, well, you know, Aphrodite and Ares did it. Like <laughs> once they once yeah. they had sex, like the the adultery has happened. There's no taking it back. There is a union between them, and so then the question is now what? A lot of moderns look at things like blood sports, boxing, MMA, uh, and say this ought not to be. This is bad for people. This is exploitative. Uh, this is, um, you know, our kids shouldn't see this, et cetera, et cetera. And they are responding to something that is, I think, actually true. There is something kind of wrong about this alliance of beauty and violence and yet they're objecting to something that just exists like they might say oh violence isn't beautiful at all it's ugly and it's only degenerate creeps and cretins that think otherwise and this is a kind of very commonplace sort of progressive sentiment that uh, it's only like slope-browed knuckle-dragging neanderthals who are interested in this kind of thing the problem with that is that no then you're really whistling past the graveyard you're trying to put a good face on a situation it's actually more 
more worrying than just sort of like, oh, there's this degenerate part of society that responds to these coarse amusements. No, it's not that. It's like human beings will always respond to these coarse amusements because they are inherently fascinating. But there's always also something inherently a little bit wrong with them in the way that like an adulterous love affair is always going to be like a little wrong. And so that myth works beautifully to, to, to express the core of what's weird about boxing or martial arts, um, you know, about like the prize fight game. And it articulates the discomfort that I think every thoughtful fight fan has when somebody says, well, how can you like that stuff? Uh, what kind of person are you anyway to enjoy the sufferings of others? There's no really good answer for that. It's a hard question to answer because on some level you always know that people are right to say that there's this is messed up. And yet at the same time, if you're a fight fan, you also know that you're right in finding mm -hmm. beauty in this. And so there's this impasse and both sides never really talk to each other. They talk past one another. Uh, there's a beautiful essay by... Joyce Carol Oates called On Boxing, which for my money is the single most intelligent thing anybody's ever written about the sport. And that is saying something because there is a huge and outstanding literature on boxing. And she makes the point that fight fans are always kind of, there's something at the heart of the fight game that they want to express, they want to be able to tell outsiders about it, to explain why they enjoy watching boxing, and yet somehow you never quite arrive there. You never quite get there. You can never quite find the words to express it. And that it, whatever it is, that's a mystery that remains forever inexpressible to people outside and will for all, forever be completely 100% obvious to those inside the sphere of like the boxing world, the fight game. You know, f two fight fans who discover that they're both fight fans, and that's very often what happens is like you are the one person you know who likes watching boxing or walks, watches mixed martial arts, and then by accident you find somebody you know that also enjoys it, and first at first you can't believe it, and then you just start talking about your favorite fighters and great fights and... You know, who do you think Errol Spence is going to fight next or whatever? And then uh, and then you never talk about, like, why are we talking about grown men stripped to the waist, bloodying each other in a ring? Like, why are we talking about this? Why do we like this? It goes unspoken within the charm circle of the fight game, and it is inexpressible outside that circle. So all of this is to say that this myth is a beautiful way of expressing that fundamental mystery. The only thing I don't get about it is... And, I, and, and by the way, it makes sense to me that Hermes, somebody who's just always about what's new, he's always interested in uh, exploring the possibilities of something new in the scene. It doesn't surprise me that he'd be willing to let this one slide. But why would Poseidon be the voice of you know, civic authority that fears the disruptive power of this spectacle? Why Poseidon? I have a. I thought about that too. I was surprised, and Hillman doesn't really um, answer that question. But I did think about it. I think that uh, there's two things. Okay, let's start with Poseidon. I think it's Poseidon because 
Poseidon is the brooding, moody god of the sea. He's a god with um, very, very strong uh, emotional, uh, a very strong emotional core. He's the most emotional of the gods. So, you know, just following classical gender archetypes, he's a more feminine god than Zeus, for example, who's all bravado and macho, machismo and all that stuff. So Poseidon is able to see what the goddesses see or what the goddesses refuse to see, but they don't even want to come and see this. So basically, uh, the goddesses stay away from the, the scandal altogether. Poseidon comes over, but reacts the way the goddesses would if they'd been there, which is that there's danger in this. It's not a good thing. Because Poseidon has this, um, this uh, maternal aspect, um, as the god of the sea, which is a mm. clearly yin, feminine thing. So he reacts on behalf of the goddesses. You know, I'm just going to talk about my experience here, and I don't want to pass judgment or generalizations, um, but I'm going to generalize a little bit and That's say okay. that I've met, I've, met, I've met a lot more uh, male fighting sport fans than female. I've rarely met women who are really into watching people beat the shit out of each other. That's just my experience. Um, I'm sure there are tons of women who are really into these sports. Women, uh, you haven't and, met that um, many women who are like hardcore, right? Take no prisoners, fight fans. Exactly. I haven't met many. There are undoubtedly many. Um, I've met a few, but I haven't met many. And I think the the general tendency is. For women to react to these acts of violence with uh, a kind of, at least I was talking to my wife about it. And what she was saying was she doesn't like the fact that it's beautiful. In fact, she doesn't, she, she finds it just purely scandalous to see a boxing match. To her, she feels like what, her instincts are always um, the nurturing instinct. She, she doesn't want to see people get hurt. And she doesn't find anything funny or fun about people getting hurt. Um, if they did it consensually, it's not any more pleasant for her to watch that than to watch a BDSM porn video. It's just not what she's into. So, Although um, I suppose a BDSM so, porn video would probably also be consent as well, albeit consent within a, it would, a sphere it would be of potentially economic exploitation, depending on your opinion of pornography, which, by the way, not a, thro not a throwaway connection because I think people often compare uh, fight sports to pornography. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, 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 uh, I filmed a, a documentary about Muay Thai in Thailand. And uh, what, what I learned there, what I observed was that it's a way to, to kind of lift yourself out of poverty in Thailand to become a fighter and to get on the circuit. I mean, they are huge fighting fans there. And they, you can fight every night if you want to. For this, a certain, you know, economic social class, it's, this, is, this is a way out. This is a way up. And um, so it would be, I think it would be naive not to recognize the role of economics in the evolution of, of these types of sports. Yep. But that doesn't, that doesn't, um, that doesn't uh, make them immoral as such, in my, in my mind, at least. But at the same time, uh, and getting back to your wife's response to boxing, the fact that there's consent here, that you've got a bunch of people who are agreeing to beat the ever-living shit out of each other, doesn't really change the fact that this feels like a form of exploitation. And even if you say, well, you know, the, the best paid fighters are like rich beyond the dreams of avarice, still doesn't matter because there's this sort of feeling that violence 
like sex is this weirdly intimate thing and the idea of taking it out of this kind of private domain and making money with it just seems mm. inherently, I don't know, hashtag problematic, right? I agree. But I, the second thought I had when you were talking and asking about Poseidon was that I, it seems to me that stuff like wrestling, um, you know, Greco-Roman wrestling, and everything that's evolved from that in the West or martial arts, it's kind of Poseidon's answer. It's a way to separate the two while recognizing what happened. So you, you impose a set of rules, a legalistic framework for the beauty of violence to exist, for violence and beauty to continue their, their affair in a sense, their dalliance. but within a very strict, their dalliance within a very strict context a very strict milieu that's governed by um you know rules and traditions and a code and that's what enables the affair to progress in the light of consciousness as opposed to being repressed altogether and then it just kind of explodes on you in uh, spectacularly through actual warfare yeah so there's a there's a theory uh i'm sure it's probably an old obsolete theory but there's a way you could say that these types of sports are a way for um aggressive males to kind of let out some steam and <laughs> you know yeah. do that instead of you'll often hear that, that kid would have ended up on the street if he hadn't gotten into karate or if he hadn't gotten into uh boxing that it saves a lot of people yep because it takes that libidinal energy and lets them gives them an outlet that's uh noble in a sense Yeah, the, actually, I was having this conversation with my boxing coach a couple of days ago. He was talking about how we were talking about how difficult it is to talk about a love of boxing, why you love it, why you think it's valid uh, to people who don't have any background with it and don't have any interest in it. He was saying, well, you know, there's a street fight like two guys hauling off in a parking lot behind a bar at 2 a.m. That's violence. What happens in a boxing rim is the art and science of boxing. Well, what's the difference? You could say that uh, so-called art and science of boxing is merely dressing up that fundamental act of aggression with tinsel and bunting to try and make it look a little bit nicer. But at the end of the day, it is no different from what happens in parking lots uh, across America and Canada every night. But then the idea that I'm playing with here is an idea of, I guess it's something like sublimation, you know, in a kind of Freudian sense that you have an unacceptable thought or you have a, you know, libidinal energy that can't be discharged safely in society in its raw form. 
And so you sublimate it into something. So the idea is that, like, just raw sexual energy. Well, you just can't go around. Let me try. You just can't go. Can't go around banging everybody. Uh, and so we have to apply a lot of rules to it. Rules of courtship yeah. and 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 what a marriage is and the circumstances under which you can be with somebody. But even but that's one form of sublimation. Uh, so we right. take that libidinal energy and we channel it towards something that we esteem, like. Building families, right? Well, that was that is what sex is for, though. <laughs> that is what sex is for. That's a good point, um, and I think it's the same thing with fighting. You can say, "Oh, well, what fighting really is like um, what boxing is, for example, is just a formalized way." to allow angry young men to beat the shit out of each other. Like, they were going to do it anyway, but at least now we're making them wear headgear and, and boxing gloves and hand wraps, and we're putting a ref in there. Right. I find that's obviously true, but it also doesn't even come close to covering the whole picture. So, like, thinking back to this idea of sublimation, you take a raw form of just, like, wanting to have sex with everything or wanting to just beat people up just cause you know uh and you do find people who are like that but that that is pretty much what we would call an uncivilized person like a, a rapist or a uh or, or a person who commits physical assaults constantly just because they're acting out of this hunger like that would be we would call that a sociopath right and we would want that person locked up and so those are unacceptable energies and so we have to blunt them we have to take that energy and maybe through some act of inner alchemy perform a transubstantiation of it into something more valid so we take raw sexual energy and we turn it into domesticity but we can also turn it into art you know an artist can take that raw procreative drive and instead of making babies make pieces of art and likewise you can think of all of sport all games as being sublimations of violence. You know, violence on in its raw form is unacceptable, so we're going to affect this kind of alchemical transmutation, and now there's rules, and the rules step-by-step step lead you away from the reality of violence towards an abstraction of violence until you get to, you know, and you can think of it as a continuum where it's barely sublimated at all, where it's just... It's as close to violence in its raw state as possible. Think of uh, bare-knuckle boxing of the 19th century or uh, the early years of the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. Or, or, or this, martial art, this martial art called Lethway that I got to um, discover through my work. That's pretty much as close to just pure violence as you're likely to get. Yeah. So yes, you you you. Well, what's it like? I I don't I know nothing about that fighting style. So Lethway is this uh, bare knuckles um, fighting sport that's practiced in Myanmar. It used to be. I think it used to be. The the rules used to state that the the match ended when blood was drawn or something of the sort. There was, Mm -hmm. but blood is drawn in every match. (laughs) You know, it's just. It's really, 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 really violent, hmm. and um, and it it, but there is still that. I don't know if we can call it sublimation because it's not sublimated. It is even in boxing. It's still just beating up. It's not like hockey okay. where it's like okay. you but, could say that, that but, hockey is sublimated warfare. Yeah, okay, but 
you know, to go back to this yeah. idea that there's a continuum of sublimation from barely sublimated right. at all, like Lethway, all the way to chess, where there's no violence yes. at all. No one's smacking anybody or doing anything of the sort, but it's all in the rules and forms of chess. Now, one thing right. that you find fight fans often saying by way of, I guess, justifying their favorite thing is to say that in a game of chess, if my knight takes your bishop and it makes the little hook move, you know, the little L-shaped move, um, that means something because within the rules of chess, it means something. We've all consensually decided that it means something. But it doesn't really mean anything. It's just an arbitrary pattern. However, right. if I punch you in the face, that will always mean something, right? The action mm -hmm. of hitting somebody has a reality, an, uh, an unsublimated reality. And the thing about fight sports is that they are right at the edge of that continuum. But there is sublimation. Like, there is a difference between just two guys going at it in a parking lot and a professional boxing match. There's rules for one thing. Like there's all kinds of parts of the body that you can't hit. You're not supposed yes. to hit somebody and hold them at the same time. Unlike, well, I mean, you're not supposed to do it in hockey either, but that's basically the way all hockey fights are. It's clutch and grab. Uh, you, you grab the guy by his jersey and you punch him until he falls down. And by comparison, you know, boxing is quite a bit removed from that like there's all kinds of there's you're not supposed to hold and hit you're not supposed to you know hit a guy in the nuts hit below or, the belt or yeah. gouge or gouge a guy in the eyes and most importantly there's a third man in the ring uh, Joyce Carol Oates makes the argument that it's the referee that makes the boxing match without the referee you just got two guys fighting and she says like basically that would be an obscene spectacle that nobody could really stand um well, clearly the ancient Greeks and Romans could stand it. Uh, I kinda, I'm kind of with Joyce Carol Oates on this. The presence of somebody who at times is our delegate, our representative, like the representative of the conscience of the audience in the ring. So when one guy is taking just a hellacious beating, you can say, this is going to stop now. You know, or if somebody does something against the rules, you can call a foul. And if he keeps doing it, you can disqualify him. It's a way of taking violence and subjecting it to some kind of regular order. Absolutely. However, there remains the fact that the dalliance was between beauty and violence, period. Not about beauty and sublimated violence. So there needs to be something about the basic essence of boxing that has to do with the objective beauty of violence. Yeah. The, at least the objective event of that union. And the, and, and, and the uh, fact that's that, kind of weird. And, and as much as we sublimate it and like an amateur boxing, it's all about scoring points rather than getting knockouts and so on. At the end of the day, yeah, you're still hitting dudes in the face. And that always means yeah. something. And if you took that out of boxing, there'd be nothing left. You well, wouldn't, wouldn't even be, be left with something like chess. Yeah. It would be, yeah. What do yeah. you call it? Shadow, shadow boxing? Or, no, that's when you're alone. Um, but the uh, you could think of a continuum, a kind of spectrum. With At, at one end, you'd have like the full-on gladiatorial combat of the ancient Romans. 
And at the other end of the spectrum, you would have the absolutely rarefied, abstracted combat arts of the Shaolin monks who mm-hmm. don't even fight. So, And then the boxing would be somewhere in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. where they're still fighting, but it's it's as codified as you could make it without taking the violence out because mm-hmm. the violence is the thing, right? Like, yeah. let's just admit it. That's what it's yes. about. And it, it, it seems to me that the sublimation, and this might be just a semantic thing, probably is, but it seems you, you talk about sublimation once the violence is not there anymore. That's where you can talk about sublimation. Uh, um, I, before don't that, know, it's just, I don't know if that's true. No? I think you can have violence that has been sublimated a little bit. I, and this is really okay. odd. I mean, and, and it's still violence. You just haven't... Uh, I've always thought that true violence, like if, if you've ever been around violence as it erupts into everyday life, like two people who are having a quiet argument, suddenly it erupts into a noisy argument, like at a neighboring table in a restaurant. There's this ugly current. It's not even something that you can see or hear. It's just you feel it. It's almost like a temperature drop in the room. There's this ugly current that comes off of it of like anger and hatred. It's often said, even in professional fighting, anger has no place in the ring. There's a strong ethos of like, even if there's a lot of trash talking you see in in fights, in the lead up very often, the fighters are trying to sell the fight. And so they say all kinds of shit to each other. Almost always, or at least very, 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 very often when the fight is over, they embrace and they often embrace for like a long time for there's, it's almost like the camera will capture a moment of intimacy so uh, intense that it feels shame, more shameful to watch that than to have watched all the violence preceding that moment. There's this strange feeling yeah. of love that is eros. That that's yeah. I was gonna bring that up as as the that's the moment where uh, Aphrodite uh, shows her presence in the boxing match, like and also yeah. in the form of the 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 sexist tradition of the ring girls. Yes. Who, are like, you know, the, I was tr- I was thinking about it last night, and I was thinking of the boxing ring as a kind of magic circle, right? So it mm-hmm. it delineates a space that we were talking about that last last time, delineates a space in which magic can be performed, in which the archetypes can be conjured or summoned into being. So, but you need to separate it from the rest of the world, or else it's just it's just that argument in the restaurant you were talking about. It's yeah. just this ugly fight. But if you ritualize it, if you set up a space, a ritual space in which it can happen. Well, the, the boxing ring uh, separates the outer world from the inner world of the match itself. Yeah. And then you have the announcer, who's almost like this priest. And he, he even often has, like, or at least in the cliched mo- like old movies, you'll have like the microphone like coming down from the ceiling to, oh, yeah. to him, as if it's coming down, as if it's coming down from Ares himself, you know, from Olympus. <laughs> and then... And then he'll he'll announce the fight. He'll name the fighters. And then the ring girls are like these sibyls, these kind of priestesses who keep time and who reaffirm the boundaries of the of the boxing ring by transgressing it periodically between rounds. So they'll yeah. come into the ring with uh, the numbers and they keep uh, order. And then the um, the presence of Aphrodite for me comes when in the clinch. You know when they cl- when the fighters clinch, mm-hmm. and it's like they're. They're protecting themselves from the other by holding the other tightly. I always found that very alluring as a kind of a event. Like the, the two boxers grab each other and they're holding each other as a way 
to stop fighting you know as a way although, to like although i don't know what the, actually yeah. though the clinch is its own phase of fighting it's just a different kind of fight it's it's it is true right. that like especially in boxing if one guy gets stung if he gets his bell rung with like a good clean shot he'll very often immediately go for a clinch to try and bind up the arms of the opponent uh just to keep him uh, just to give himself a couple of seconds to clear his head. And the right, referee right, okay. will break them up if they don't fight their way out of it. The idea is like, yeah, fighters fall and clinch all the time, but there's a whole art to getting out of it with like maybe landing of some of your own shots while avoiding them. So the clinch actually well, is its own kind of fight. Sure, but you can also imagine how in the heat of a a really intense fight where you're hurt and you get into a clinch... And the temptation to just kind of stay there a little bit. Um, to well, yeah, catch, actually, like you, said, you do see that. <laughs> when yeah. you see both fighters, sometimes they're really tired. And by the way, if uh, anybody listening to this, if you've never tried even to throw punches at a heavy bag for two solid minutes, you have no idea how tiring it is. And actually fighting somebody is 10 times more tiring because it's so unpredictable. Like, it's unbelievably exhausting to do this stuff. And sometimes you will see fighters in the later rounds, they're both really tired. And they're both still trying to win, but sometimes they'll fall into what really looks like a consensual clinch. Like, they're both holding on to the other, and they're not really trying to fight out of it. They're both getting a breather. Like, that happens not infrequently. Well, that's why the referee has to separate them, right? Yeah. Yeah. The and, referee is there not the only to protect the fighters, but also to keep them fighting. Right, because they, they could fall into each other's arms. I'm just saying that there's this, and you see this in great war films too, and, and in, in stories about the war. Um, this That's the thing about the sublime, you know? And, and the people who would like to deny the, the beauty of violence are, maybe they haven't read their, you know, Kant and Burke, because the sublime is that which you cannot accept and yet is it's what tra- completely exceeds your conceptual powers yeah. so th- the idea that there be beauty in war and you hear this i was reading in hillman's book he talks about people who were in london during the blitz and the absolute and they they would say like i was filled with terror and yet i was amazed i was i was enraptured with the beauty of these burning buildings and these like for these bombers kind of like barreling down on the city and these explosions and and the the sheer intensity of seeing these structures that I thought would just always be there just come down like they were made of cardboard you know yeah and there there's just something about that spectacle that is we can we can not like it but we can't say that there's no uh, sublime in it. There's no sublimity in it. There's no beauty in it. Well, I can think of the best possible example of that is the collapse of the Twin Towers on 9-11, 2001. And mm-hmm. there's a German composer, Karl-Heinz Stockhausen, who got in a lot of trouble because after that happened and the weeks after it, he said he said something to the effect that this is the greatest work of art that an artist could possibly imagine. And he immediately said, and of course, the most terrible. And everybody, of course, was deranged by grief. And, you know, nobody is doing their best thinking when they're recovering from um, something like that. So needless to say, people epically missed his point. But the point he was trying to make was that the spectacle of the Twin Towers collapsing is a spectacle of utter dread, uh, a spectacle of utter 
power of sublimity. I mean, sublime doesn't just mean beautiful. It means terrible, awful, literally, right. as in, inspires awe. And I can think of nothing, no spectacle I have ever seen in my life that has inspired awe, a kind of terrible, uh, um, just a terrible scrotum-shrinking feeling of awe as when I was watching TV and the towers fell. That doesn't mean it's good. And that was Stockhausen's immediate point, that it's a kind of satanic work of art. But nevertheless, that Osama bin Laden and his lieutenants imagined something, a kind of vast spectacle of destruction, a vast Götterdammerung to play out in the media, to play out as a as, as televised spectacle. And in so doing, they created something that would last forever. People will be remembering that those images. People will be circulating those photographs and those clips for as long as we have the technology to do so. And, the, right. and so, you know, this actually brings us face to face with sort of a scandal of beauty. Leaving aside the dalliance of Aphrodite and Ares, there's always something problematic in beauty because beauty doesn't adhere to noble things or if it does so it does That's, sometimes yeah. almost accidentally or in at least i would say incidentally well here's where we get into interesting uh territory which you know relates directly to what we're talking about uh blood sports so the um you know benjamin uh, walter benjamin famously um, associated the aestheticization of, of, of violence or the aestheticization of politics in general, but of warfare and violence uh, specifically with fascism. And I think that's a pretty obvious uh, observation now looking mm -hmm. back at history to see, and you can trace this back to the decadence and the futurist manifesto and certain art movements in the late 19th, early 20th century, where there was a clear uh, celebration of the sublimity of violence. Yep. It seems to me like the fascist mistake is to recognize the beauty of violence and then s equate beauty with the good. Mm -hmm. Whereas, in fact, what you're saying is that beauty make, takes no account of what is good and evil. Yep. That beauty is its own thing. And, you know, it's one of the three big uh, fundamental principles for Plato, right? So beauty on its own can be horrible and um, it can become uh, the, the sublime uh, spectacle of 9-11 or Hiroshima or the, the bombing of Hamburg in the Second World War or whatever. Right. So beauty needs to be tempered by other forces or else it becomes very, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Does that, that make sense? Yeah, which is, I think, why the decadence were so much about that idea of just beauty for its own sake. Didn't we talk about this when we were talking about uh, Machen's we the did, white people? But we, yeah, Machen we was ended up arguing, yeah, but Mark, Machen certainly didn't uh, uh, conflate beauty and goodness at yeah. all. That, that's he my, just, that, but that's he my was point. fascinated by each. But my, my point is that the decadents knew perfectly well that uh, uh, beauty is, the beautiful is not necessarily the good. And so the kind of like almost... Um, the, the glorification of things that are sickly and unwholesome, as in uh, Richard Strauss's opera Salome, I think I talked about that. Mm -hmm. You know, the, it, that's like glorifying beauty as this amoral force and doing so by showing you something beautiful 
that is so obviously wrong. How does this relate to blood sports? Is our our violent sports a way to appreciate the beauty of what is wrong in a way? Yeah. Is what's, something... what's the truth of the spectacle? Um, all of the above. This is why I think there will always be this kind of mystery that hangs around it. That like people who are fight fans or in some way in, involved in the fight game um, will always inhabit a magic circle. As, as delimited from the rest of the world as the boxing ring is from the seating of the spectators. You know, this delimited little world where it makes sense. And then there's this vast incomprehension outside of that world. That will always exist, I think, because the truth is irreducibly plural. At least that's my feeling of it. The censorious ones, the the, the Poseidons, the, the the people who are trying to prohibit or at at the very least heavily regulate these sports are they right in looking at this violence as you know violence however sublimated it's still violence in the sport of boxing are they right yes they're absolutely right uh, are they right in saying that there is something a little sick and wrong about enjoying violence yeah i think they're kind of right about that are boxing fans right in saying, yeah, but you don't understand, boxing is not violence, it's an art and a sport and a and a, even a, a science, if you like, you know, this kind of complicated chess game. Yeah, they're absolutely right about that. It seems to me that what, what we're getting at is that the, the beauty is not a subjective thing. Beauty is the subjective reaction to a real thing. The, the beauty and violence, the dalliance of Ares and Aphrodite isn't just uh, something that exists in the heads of particular people whose personal individual traits make it so that they see, see things this way. This is seeing something that is. The, the, the perception of the sublime in philosophy can be construed as the perception of the innate objective beauty of things, the innate objective uh, magnificence or the, the transcendent qualities of an event. So what's beautiful in violence is that the fund, these deep cosmic forces that are always present are manifesting themselves visibly so that you're seeing an event that is like an event in the, in the, in the, in the purest sense of the word. And, um, there's uh, Deleuze wrote about war a little bit, and I think it applies here. There's a passage in uh, Logic of Sense that I, I wanted to read to you because I, I feel that he's getting at something essential. So he wrote, If the battle isn't an example of an event among others, but rather the event in its essence, it's no doubt because it is actualized in diverse manners at once and because each participant may grasp it at a different level of actualization within its variable presence. And the same is true for the now classic comparisons between Stendhal, 
Hugo and Tolstoy when they see the battle and make their heroes see it. But it is above all because the battle, and this is the key part, the battle hovers over its own field, being neutral in relation to all of its temporal actualizations, neutral and impassive in relation to the victor and the vanquished, the coward and the brave. Because of all this, it is all the more terrible. The battle is never present, but always yet to come and already past. It is graspable only by the will of anonymity, which it itself inspires. And, okay, so this is Deleuze's the, the writing. But what he's getting at is that if you've ever been in a fight, and I think this, if the same would apply in a, in a, a real intense boxing match or sparring mm-hmm. match, is that there's always, there's, there's the, you, remember you mentioned the third man, the referee, who's the third man who's present there. He, he is an emissary of something. He's an emissary of the fight as an event. So like, I've, I remember getting into a real fight once in my life. And the first thought that came to my mind was, I'm in a fight. So it wasn't, my, my fear wasn't of the guy in front of me. It was of the fight now I was part of like this event, like it's this archetypal event that's happening mm. and it's ta- it's giving you your role in it and you need to fight now because you're in a fight. Mm. So what Deleuze is saying is that in a battle, you have so many different perspectives on it that it becomes its own thing. And it's it, the battle doesn't care who wins or loses. The battle is its own event and people participate in it and then take on these kind of uh, archetypal roles within it, within the event. But the event uh, is uh, is the God itself. Oh, wow. So that's a really it, interesting way of thinking about it. At the end of the passage, he says, there is indeed a God of war, but of all gods, he's the most impassive, the least permeable to prayers. And then he has a list of words like he, he writes an impenetrability, empty sky, aeon. So aeon is Deleuze's idea of time, uh, an other order of time from the chronos that we usually experience, the kind of tick-tock time. Like he's talking about the time of the event itself. And a lot of these violence is a moment in life, one of those peak experiences where this other form of time comes into being. And you, it's creating something that is more than just the sum of its parts. It isn't for no reason that a big boxing match is called the main event. It's this thing where these forces will clash and we will see for a moment the gods in the flesh, that that somehow these divinities come into being and manifest through the magical working that is the match or the, 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 the battle itself. This is very interesting to me. Actually, this reminds me of a passage in uh, Joyce Carol Oates on boxing, uh, which I'm going to read. She writes, the fighters in the ring are time-bound. Surely nothing is so excruciatingly long as a fiercely contested three-minute round. But the fight itself is timeless. In a sense, it becomes all fights, as the boxers are all boxers. Exactly. And that's that's the... Um, I love that. I love that. She she basically is saying what Deleuze is saying, but in a much yep, more coherent exactly, way. Yeah. This is why we engage in these spectacles, and this is why we need to embrace um, the reality of violence and the reality of sex, for example. We talked about sex earlier. I think the same thing applies there. And these are ways of, yes, there is a sublimation, but more more so, there are ways of allowing violence to exist as such. Um, and these these sports may be kind of ways of magically... Uh, inducing events in a controlled 
locus that allows them to 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 exist and that that keeps us in touch with certain things that we do sublimate very drastically in our everyday life yeah no i think you're absolutely right you know one one way of interpreting that would be a kind of functionalistic explanation of like well you know young men are violent and they need an outlet for that violent tendency so better they put on gloves and headgear and have you know, fights that have rules and referees than just beating the ever-living shit out of each other on the streets. And this is true, and that's a good point. But I would also say I would put the same idea negatively, which is that not having any place in your life for the contemplation of violence in however in a safer way, not a safe way, because boxing ain't safe, but like a safer way, in a way that ha- where violence has come somewhat under the sway of civilization i would say that not doing that has some real consequences if you go through life so alarmed by violence that you shun every manifestation of it if you can't handle the aggression that is within you and i don't care who you are you have aggression in you if you don't have a way of seeing it, looking at it, experiencing it, and recognizing it in yourself, if you can't even bring yourself to recognize it, if it's such an important part of who you think you are that you don't have an aggressive bone in your body and you don't understand other people being aggressive, if, you, if that's your line, then I suspect that you're repressing that part of yourself. And I suspect that... Right. If you're repressing that part of yourself, it is going to come out, but in more or less unskillful and unconscious ways. I mean, Nietzsche, for example, says that Christianity is passive aggression on a vast scale. Like, you can't beat your opponent, right? You can't raise your fist to the person you see as your oppressor. And so you forgive them. You show love to them. You turn the other cheek. And the idea is that, well, I don't know if this is Nietzsche's idea, but like you make them feel bad about their strength. Well, that's exactly Nietzsche's idea. You organize a moral system that says that that aggression, that strength is bad. And by the same token, that your own passivity and weakness is good. And in that way... Uh, weak people can gain power over strong people. I think that's kind of Nietzsche's Absolutely. point, right? That's Nietzsche's thing. Yeah. And so, like, from that point of view, then, the a phobic relationship to violence, an attempt to legislate it out of existence or pretend it doesn't exist, simply results in aggression being sublimated and turned into other forms. And I think that one thing about actually contemplating aggression, true aggression, the aggression that lies in all of our hearts, is that you have more ways of dealing with it skillfully. Like a bit of overt aggression, like for example, just going to do a little bit of boxing sparring. It regulates your emotions. It makes you feel somehow a little bit more in control of aggression and violence in your own soul because you've ringed it round not with prohibitions but you've ringed it round with ritual and with forms of uh forms of law rules under which it can appear and the rules under which it can't there's a lot of people have argued um that 
martial arts training develops confidence and um, the ability to stand up straight and speak your mind. And, th and there's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for at least making friends of the aggression in your heart so that you are conscious of it. You know, it doesn't mean mm -hmm. you need to manifest it, but you, how can you become conscious of it without letting it letting it come out somehow? Yeah. And uh, there's a big difference in my mind between being a spectator of a sport and practicing a sport. So, you know, you, you, those riots that follow, you know, big uh, football or hockey games, you know, they, right. they seem to be, I mean, those games seem to have done very little to help people temper their aggression. Yeah, um, far from On it, the contrary, yeah. right. So maybe the practice of a sport can enable you to do that. But the, there remains, I think, the question of what watching the sports does, if anything, but I don't want to argue against that, though. I think there's something to it. I just, Actually, I just don't the way know I because would, I've, yeah. The way I would respond to that is like that fighting, sport fighting, uh, fighting a spectacle um, is almost, uh, use a cheesy metaphor for it, a like a koan, like a Zen koan. It's a riddle that demands and resists an answer. And the koan ultimately is like as every time somebody says to you a fight fan how can you watch that stuff and i don't even really quite know the answer myself all the time you know because it's like how can i stand to watch the suffering inflicted on another person i mean i really hate violent movies like i would i would do anything i would walk a mile out of my way to avoid watching a saw movie right and yet for some right. reason i can i can watch a, a boxing match where somebody gets knocked the fuck out and with perfect equanimity why is that i don't know i don't fully know but i do think that one of the bad answers to that how can you watch that stuff there are a number of bad answers and one of them is oh it's not that bad really um, they don't really get hurt. It's actually pretty safe. Well, some guys really do get hurt. There are still ring deaths. People still get killed in the ring. I mean, you can make adjustments to the rule set. You can change the culture of refereeing, which really has happened so that referees are very apt to stop the fight early than late. Even so, it's an inherently unsafe activity. If you say it's not, you're lying. You're in bad faith. Right. Uh, yeah, another it's bad, bad faith because you're you're denying you're denying the very essence of the sport, which is yeah. like what we said earlier. If there is no, yeah. if it's not a, if it's not violent in the sense of if it's not actual injury, um, then what the fuck is if it? It's even not about for? hurting the other. Then it's not. If it's not about a knockout, then there's no sport. It's not there. You know. Yeah. So, but then at the same time, somebody could also. There's other bad rationalizations where you could say. Oh, you liberal panty wastes, you bleeding hearts. Uh, like, you don't understand what men understand. You hear that kind of shit a lot too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like there's just something that men understand about violence. No, <laughs> I, I don't think that there's much evidence that even the most accomplished practitioners of the fighting arts necessarily really understand where it's coming from in them or what the point is for spectators watching it. I think that the the riddle that fighting poses to its fans is yeah, how can you watch this? And like and ultimately all I can say is I can and there is something valuable to it. There's something beautiful 
in it, something very beautiful in it. And I recognize there's something wrong with it. I recognize there's always going to be something a little unlawful about it. I recognize that on some level, I simply can't justify this in utilitarian terms, in terms of, you know, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. But it's the virtue of actually being asked to contemplate that question and consult the violence in my own soul is itself really important. Like that is, I'm not going to say that's the point of it, because if I said that's the point of fight sports, then I would be rushing to some kind of final synthetic judgment. We say, well, that's actually what combat sports is about. I don't think there's any one thing that's actually what it's all about. But I will say that I think that there is a sovereign virtue to having occasions to contemplate this stuff and having to just face up to it. I think you're right. I think there are as many, as many reasons for being uh, a boxing fan for as there are uh, boxing fans. And uh, our relationship to events that, that are in their essence as primordial as a boxing match are the very nature of these events make it the only real relationship you can have to it is an individual relationship. How do you, what is what is it that you seek in this? Why do you, and it has to do with each person's um, story. And the other thing is that the, the, the beautiful thing about a boxing, uh, about a fight is that it is a story. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end, and something will happen. And the there is something about that that makes it inherently interesting. Yes. And um, and we can we can we can ban it. We can regulate it. We can do everything. It won't change uh, that primordial power that it manifests as contest and story as agon. Right. That's a w- Greek word I like a lot. Agon meaning battle. Okay, so a fight is a fight, but even in the case of uh, a bar fight where one guy says, you know, you want to take this outside and then the two men agree to go outside and fight or the idea of the duel, which was uh, a ritual that occurred over many centuries in Europe and in, in North America where two men would agree to either duel with swords or with guns to settle their dispute. The strange thing about this type of combat, as opposed to all-out cruel aggression, is that there is an agreement. And you can sense that when you watch a boxing uh, match. It's that there, there is this agreement. These two men have agreed to do this. Like you said, you talked about consent. They're, they've agreed to engage in this, in this combat. And there's a certain nobility to each party holding it it's part of the deal and playing it out by the rules to the end. There's a great temperance in that and a, and a uh, discipline and um, a noble faith in humanity's capacity to play games and to establish contracts that, that hold true to the end. So I, I don't know. There, I feel that when I watch boxing, you can feel that it's a game 
And the fact that it's a game makes it noble. And it, that's where the sublimation maybe happens a little bit, is that, that the, the whatever aggression go, goes into boxing is elevated at yeah. that moment. One thing I can do um, to loop back to something earlier uh, that we were talking about was something you were saying, like that every time you see guys fall into a clinch, I mean, they're fighting, but they're also hugging each other. Like there's a sort of sense, like at the heart of this violence between men, there's also a weird kind of tenderness. And this is a, something that people have commented on from the beginning. But there's also a sort of an enantiodromia kind of thing, a reversal. I think we've already probably deployed this concept in something we've recorded. And if we haven't, very briefly, that's just the idea that anything, when pushed to its ultimate degree, will reverse into its opposite. And so it's often said that extreme uh, left-wingers, hardcore communists, actually just end up looking like hardcore authoritarian right-wingers, and vice versa. But likewise, you could say something similar about the masculinity of fighting is so extreme, so concentrated that it reverses into a kind of a kind of feminine intimacy. Or if you don't want to use gendered language for it, that violence can reverse into uh, tenderness or anger can reverse into love. There's something of that. And certainly that uneasy closeness of intimacy and violence is something that you find all the time in intellectual writing about boxing. I'm, I think the huge bibliography of writing on, about, within boxing testifies to some of the stuff we've been talking about, the sort of almost unspeakable mystery at the heart of boxing. this episode, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>